Good afternoon once again, ladies and gentlemen. From One King West Hotel in downtown Toronto, welcome once again to the Empire Club of Canada. For those of you just joining us to either our webcast or our podcast, welcome to the broadcast of today's event. Before I have the pleasure of introducing our distinguished speakers today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce our head table guests. And for anybody who's been to an Empire Club lunch uh, this year, you'll know that my style is I ask everybody to stand and I say clap as much as you can for each person. You don't have to hold your applause. Show them the love. Okay. So first we have Mr. Ron Jamison, the first senior VP of Aboriginal Banking at BMO. <laughs> Beside him is Mr. J.P. Gladue. President and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. Mr. Clint Davis, Partner and Managing Director of Acasta Capital Indigenous. Mr. Christopher Njekineb, President and CEO of ORES Gold Incorporated. Beside him is Mr. William White, the Chairman of IBK Capital and a Director at the Empire Club of Canada. The lovely Miss M.J. Perry, PhD student in Theology and Director at the Empire Club of Canada. <laughs> Got a healthy competition happening here. Next we have Mr. Stephen Fay, the Head of Aboriginal Banking, North American Industry Sectors, Bank of Montreal. <laughs> And beside him is Mr. Mike White, the President and CEO of IBK Capital Corp. <laughs> and once again, my name is Paul Fogelin. In my day job, I'm the Vice President of the Ontario Retirement Communities Association and the President of the Empire Club. Ladies and gentlemen, your head table guests. So we are also very pleased to welcome a group of students from First Nations House and from the Rotman School of Management at U of T. Thank you to NRSTOR and IBK Capital for sponsoring our student tables. Can you students rise and be recognized, please? Let's give them a hand. So one of the things the sesquicentennial does is it provides an opportunity for us to reflect on the past and examine how we can enact reconciliation as we go forward. Every lunch we host at the Empire Club aims to fulfill our mandate of facilitating conversations and open discussions on the issues that matter most to Canadians. I cannot think of a subject more suitable for this objective than the one we're hosting today, a frank discussion about the 92nd call to action. It is also worth mentioning that to date, as far as I know, we are the only voluntary organization that is primarily business-focused who are publicly responding to the call by initiating discussion and recognizing that we have a great deal to learn. We will no doubt make mistakes, and there is much more to do. But at the Empire Club, we believe this is a very important first step. The 90-second call to action is actually attached to all your programs today on your table. But in a few words, it is a call for the corporate sector to respect Indigenous rights and work collaboratively with the community. We are truly privileged today to have with us an exceptional group of accomplished First Nations business leaders who will embark on a discussion and surely some heated debate as to how to respond to the 90-second call to action, 
how it should take shape, where we stand, and the opportunities that lie before us. It is now my pleasure to introduce our speakers today in no particular order, and I would like to note that in the essence of time, I had to cut down their very impressive biographies, or else I'd be up here for 30 minutes, and you don't want to hear me for 30 minutes. So Ron, JP, and Clint, do you mind taking your seats before I read your introductions? Their full bios are available on our website. So Ron Jamisons was born on the Six Nations of the Grand River Reserve in southern Ontario. Ron is a Mohawk who inhibits two worlds. He's got the moccasins and the wingtips to prove it. He became the first Aboriginal stockbroker in Canada and spent the next 10 years selling real estate banked securities. Beginning as a trainee, he progressed to being the company president. In the early 90s, the Bank of Montreal approached him and engaged him as vice president to establish BMO's Aboriginal banking, making him Canada's first Aboriginal senior executive at a big bank. That's worth a round of applause. Ron built the first financial bridges to the Aboriginal market, increasing the bank's portfolio to over $1 billion, and it's still growing. Ron always makes time to volunteer his talents. He developed a program that allows Indian people on reserve to at last own their own homes. It's his legacy to the First Nations of Canada. Ron Jamison has also received both the Order of Ontario and the Order of Canada. For his pioneering contributions to the finance industry, notably in improving access to financial services for First Nations people across Canada. A round of applause for Ron Jameson. John Paul, or JP Gladue, is currently the President and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business, or CCAB, based here in Toronto. Anishinaabe from Thunder Bay, JP is a member of the Bingui Niashe Anishinaabek, Okay. <laughs> Located on the eastern shores of Lake Nipigon, Ontario. JP has over two decades of experience in the national resource sector. His career path includes work with Aboriginal communities and organizations, environmental and non-government organizations, industry and governments across Canada. In JP's current capacity at CCAB, he speaks extensively not only across Canada, but internationally. He mentioned at lunch he's been to Australia a few times, I think about the challenges and successes of Aboriginal business in Canada today. Currently, JP serves on the board of the Ontario Power Generation and Norant Resources, as well as the Canadian Electricity Association Public Advisory Panel. Let's welcome JP. Our moderator today is Clint Davis. Clint is the Partner and Managing Director of Acasta Capital Indigenous, or ACI, an Indigenous-owned subsidiary company of Acasta Capital. ACI partners with Indigenous governments and economic development corporations to achieve growth and value creation by assisting in the maximization of their inherent competitive advantage. Prior to the creation of the company, Clint was the Vice President of Indigenous Banking at TD. Clint is an Inuk from Labrador, is the Chair of the Board of the Directors for the Nunastavia? Very close. Close, right? Because... <laughs> Nunatsavut group of companies, which is the economic arm of the Nunatsavut government, a self-governing entity that represents the political, social, and economic interests of the Inuit in Labrador. Under Clint's leadership, the NGC has grown to owning and partnering in 14 operating companies with general revenue of over $35 million annually. Clint has had a very diverse career. He's worked as a lawyer, a senior silver servant, a banker, and is president and CEO of the CCAB. 
In 2016, Clint received the Inspire, Inspire Award for Business and Commerce, which represents the highest honour the Indigenous community bestows upon its achievers. Ladies and gentlemen, our panel. I'm clapping for you. Are you? <laughs> so, Nakamik, uh, this thing on, everybody can hear me? That's great. So, first of all, uh, I do want to say it's a real honor to be here, so thank you very much for that uh, wonderful introduction, uh, particularly since I wrote it, so thank you very much for that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> first of all, I, I do want to say um, there's a lot of discussion, a lot of talk about reconciliation in this country. In fact, just recently you saw that the Prime Minister uh, has asked the Pope formally to consider a formal apology uh, in terms of the Catholic Church's involvement with respect to residential schools. So <clears throat> a lot of talk uh, around this and some tangible activity that's happening as well, which I think is just tremendous. But I also want to say that this is one of the few times I've seen reconciliation and a focus of discussion involving business. And so it is a real honor for myself to be here and participate in this, because what you're going to hear from two of these gentlemen is business can provide a remarkable foundation in terms of a brighter future for our people and reconciliation in this country. So I'm going to launch right in, because we only have a few minutes, and I want to hear specifically from these two individuals. And, and, a, and a real honor to be here with Ron, because Ron has served uh, as a mentor uh, and an inspiration for so many of us in this room, uh, particularly JP, myself, MJ, even Nick Javor, I think. He's probably a, an inspiration yeah. and, and mentor <laughs> for Nick Javor. But Ron, I mean, you, uh, this is, I'm not saying that you're an elder, but you've been in business for a long time. That was pretty sneaky. No, thank you for that. <laughs> but you've been in business for your entire career. And you've seen some remarkable change in the indigenous world. It seems like things are different now. You, you kind of feel it. But is it? In your opinion, are things different? And do you see things uh, changing for the good? Uh, I think, uh, let me say this, Clint. I think things are better, much better, okay? But we're not there yet. We're not even close to end of job. But I, I see that the doors of business being open for their, the mutual benefit of indigenous populations and business. And there's a way to do that. And the first thing I want to dispel is the fact that many people believe that indigenous populations are anti-development. That is just not the case. Uh, they, want to be, they want to be involved in economic opportunities, for sure, but they want it done in a sustainable way. You know, I, I want to diverge just for a minute, Clint, and, and tell you why I got involved with CCAB 32 <laughs> or 33 years ago and served many years on the board and as chairman of the board. Um, <clears throat> I hope you'll allow me to. Some of you may, may have heard of a fellow by the name of Murray Koffler. Murray Koffler was the founder of the Shoppers Drug Mart chain in Canada and one of the founders of the Four Seasons Hotel chain. He was in Calgary many years ago, in fact, 1981, and he w was scouting a new site for a Four Seasons Hotel. While doing that, it was his habit when visiting cities, he would stop in at the local shopper's drug mart and visit with the people and tour around the store, etc. While he was doing that, he saw a young couple, native couple, uh, with a small child, and they were shoplifting. 
They were stipping nothing of value, candy bars, potato chips, in their pockets. So rather than call the police, or do, Murray decided that he would follow them. <clears throat> and he followed them out the door, went down the street, down an alley, down another alley, and found they were living in a dumpster. Murray was appalled. He called up uh, the federal government and got the then Minister of Housing, who was also at the time responsible for Indigenous Affairs. Uh, his name was Bernie Danson. Uh, Bernie went on to become a member of the Board of Directors of CCAB and later a senator uh, in Ottawa. And he called Barney up and he gave him a lot of grief. What, I'm, sending, I'm sending you guys taxes every year, thousands and thousands of dollars, and you're doing nothing. Like, why are these people living in dumpsters? And Barney said to him, Barney, we're trying to do the best we can. How, uh, however, Murray, I think that really, as a businessman, I think businesses have, uh, you know, a, a really opportunity to get involved here and help us change things. Murray Koffler, for those of you who ever met him, is not a guy that took challenges lightly. And he called together a group of very high-powered individuals to meet at his home, including Edward Bronfman, Paul Martin, who was then merely the president of Canada Steamship Lines, and a number of other individuals. I was at the time a branch manager just over here on Bay Street, and I got a call one day, and my secretary said, there's Murray Koffler's on the phone, wants to talk to you. And of course, being a foolish broker, I said, oh, goody, Murray's going to hand over his portfolio to me. <laughs> uh, that wasn't the nature of the call. Murray said, I'd like you to come to a meeting and meet some people and talk about what we view as an opportunity. That was in 1983, 84. This was at a time, ladies and gentlemen, when no businesses paid any attention at all to indigenous populations. In fact, they said our problems were the problems of the federal government. Cut and dried. And Murray thought that if we do this right and we get people together for their mutual benefit and make that our raison d'etre of CCAB, it will be successful. And under the leadership of these gentlemen right here, Today, the proof is there. It is successful. It is working. We need more business involvement. We need more Aboriginal leadership involvement. But I tell you, we're on the right track. We're not there yet, as I said, Clint. We've got a lot of work to do, but things are getting better. Sorry to take so much time, Clint. But even with all the work that we actually have to do, Ron, that was a tremendous insight regarding the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. Um, in your opinion, what, would, what does reconciliation look like? Ultimately, what is the end game? Well, let me tell you, when I was at the Bank of Montreal and the chairman of the bank, one Matthew Barrick, <coughs> said to me, what would success in Aboriginal banking look like? And I said, you know, Matt, it would look like you don't need Ron Jameson here. You don't need Ron Jameson poking the credit department and poking these people to get out and meet with Aboriginal people. So we need, uh, we need folks to, you know, it's not, you know, I had many bankers say to me, is it legal to go on the reserve? 
Are we, are we allowed to go on the reserve? It's a true statement. Yeah. And I said, absolutely. Go out to the reserve, meet the people, have a cup of coffee, and you're going to find out that the people that live there and in, uh, in Métis communities or whatever, wherever, you're going to find that people there are the same. They just want to be treated with respect. That's, that's really all it takes. And it does work. Thanks, man. JP, you've written extensively about economic reconciliation, and particularly as it pertains to engaging the business community. Give us a sense as to your thoughts on what is reconciliation and what's required to achieve it, why we need it, and what's required to achieve it. So to, to build on, Ron, absolutely be a better world if Ron wasn't a part of the picture. I'm kidding. Ron has been incredible. He's been an incredible advocate for the work that we've done. Here's but it would be, it would be, it would be an incredible world too if CCAB wasn't in existence. To that point, because we would be integrated in every part of business. Um, and so, what we're starting to see some trends when it comes to the Indigenous business community, and it's about um, building our own source revenue. It's about having our unemployment rates go from 85, 90% down to zero, which is starting to happen in this country. It's about being part of the economy. And to build on what Ron was saying, is that not our communities are opposed to resource development. Actually, we are, we're very much in support of if it has our people at the table, if it has our people benefiting, if it has our people mitigating in, environmental impacts, um, and at the end of the day, we're starting to see some incredible economic activity. For instance, um, the Lower Metogamy Project here in Ontario with Moose Cree First Nation. They own 25% equity in a major hydro facility with OPG. Outstanding. They are the ones generating revenue. They are the ones actually becoming the business, they're developing their business acumen and they're becoming the business drivers through uh, all the business development activity that happens with that. Um, we look at Suncor's project and their oil tank project with um, Mikasu and Fort Mackay First Nation. Mm -hmm. Yes. They are going to the market for a half a billion dollar bond to be a 49.5% mm -hmm. equity holder in that project. Now, I've had the opportunity to uh, work across sectors, and, and my job allows me the uh, opportunity to engage Canadians, Indigenous Canadians all over the country. And, you know, sitting down with folks like Ian Anderson from Kinder Morgan a number of times, and he's like, you know, JP, it's, it's, we're leading when, our, with our, when we lead with our business feet. Actually, a lot actually starts to fall in line because communities want to feel that they're engaged and empowered. Um, and so communities are stepping forward to support pipelines in this country. Um, but it's also, we also have to understand, we're not homogenous. Our communities have different capacities, different world, well, we have a similar worldview, but we have different views in the way that business should be done. And so if we look at some of the opposition to the, uh, to the pipeline, a lot of that's coming from the coast. That's, um, and, and that's because they don't feel secure that Canada, and in partnership with them, has, will have the ability to mitigate impacts. And as an example, we had a near disaster with a, a tanker coming in off of Guayanas, uh, Queen Charlotte Islands, many years, a number of years ago, and we did not have the ability to protect our land because the tanker, or the tugs were not big enough hmm. to, to thwart that threat. <coughs> Luckily, the storm changed and it, it went by. But if you empower our indigenous communities and our indigenous businesses to actually mitigate those impacts, let us be the tug drivers. Give us the big tug drivers. We'll develop the business acumen in partnership with Canada. We want the ability to participate in the economy. We want the ability to protect our environment at the same time and employ our own people. And the last point that I want to make 
and you guys have said this so eloquently, is that we're talking about reconciliation. Reconciliation is not a one-term government proposal. It is a multi-generational proposal. You've heard from Ron about how far we've come as an organization or as a, as a country when it comes to indigenous relationships and empowerment of our communities. I wouldn't be in this position if it wasn't for Murray Koffler and leadership from folks like Ron. Um, so it's going to, and what are we going to provide for our children and our grandchildren's children? And it's based on relationships and respect and reciprocity. That's what reconciliation is about, and it's that long-term commitment to that idea of fairness. So building up on that, Ron, the Truth and Reconciliation Report has, and the 94 Calls to Action has been out for nearly two years. However, we haven't seen um, business come out publicly um, as an entity in support of the Re Truth and Reconciliation Calls to Action. Why is that, and, and should that change? Uh, you know, uh, Clint, uh, that's not quite true. I mean, we've had a number of companies that have stepped out. Uh, not, not as many as I'd like to see. Right. But, uh, you know, many uh, of the companies are affiliated with CCAB, and by being affiliated with CCAB, they are doing that by action. I, I really don't expect that many corporate high-level CEOs are going to step out and say, you know, we love this truth and reconciliation stuff. I just don't expect it. What I'd rather see is action, not talk, okay? And I think we've got, I mean, I, I see MJ here from IBM, and, you know, IBM are doing some fabulous things, but I suspect that most of the people in this room don't know about it. And, you know, BMOS here, of course, and they're doing some fantastic things. And, Probably because I'm not there anymore. <laughs> no, but things are things are happening. But as I said earlier, it's it's not good enough, Clint. But it is happening. We've just got to stay the course and keep telling people that we're open for business, and we are. And, we are. And, yeah, absolutely right. And and you know we you know it's re, it's rethinking and repackaging everything as it's companies out in the audience it's about what can you do differently in the world of indigenous business and it was mentioned in my bio that i sit on opg's board and noron's board and you know we've got chief darcy bear the first chair of sas power roberta jameson hydro one um mel benson on suncor it's about having indigenous people at all levels. It's having us at your C-suite levels. It's, it's about having us in the front lines and, and that progression because we're, we have a tremendous amount of value uh, to contribute. Um, look at Doran's shares. They've gone up over 50%. Oh, <laughs> in spite of your <laughs> In spite of it. Um, but but the, the point is that we really need to, need to really rethink that the way that we approach these issues. And, and, there, and, and Ron's done, he's pointed out a few great companies in this room. And the government, Trudeau has said, our Prime Minister said, the Indigenous relationship is the most important relationship in this country. And I'll say to companies in this room, and even the great ones in this room that I know are progressive, why are we giving everybody in your supply chain a free ride? Why is the government in their supply chain giving Good point. companies a free ride? They're working hard. They should be putting that bar high just like they're doing every day. What are your procurement practices? What are your employment practices? How do you train? How do you engage? How do you develop business leadership within the indigenous business community. 
you have a lot of power through that supply chain. What, what, remember we're in that meeting, Clint, and can you go through, run those, through those Well, numbers? we said something to the effect of uh, $13 billion by the federal government procurement in one year, $92 million for Aboriginal procurement, which is less than 1%. It's if you compare that to the United States, uh, there's an aggressive approach to Indigenous procurement in the U.S. and the U.S. government, particularly mm -hmm. the Department mm -hmm. of National Defense. It transforms Indigenous business That's in right. the U.S., and the potential is there for Canada. Absolutely. True. And, and you know, for folks in the audience, we have, uh, last year, um, there's uh, $30 billion is what our Indigenous people contribute to the economy. And it's about $12 billion of that is coming from our Indigenous businesses. Now, it sounds pretty amazing, and it is when you put it in the context of the short amount of time that we've had to compete in this 150-plus years of Canada. But really, we're over 4% of the population, and that's only 1.5% of the total GDP, so we've got growth. Our growth grows at 6%. Yeah. Now, if I had a horse, I know which trailer that I would hook that up to, Absolutely. the indigenous ones. And the companies that formulate those business relationships are going to uh, uh, keep that competitive edge. JP, when, when the UN Declaration was is mentioned, the concerns yeah. that seem to arise is the notion of consent and veto. Yeah. How do you see the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People applying to a resource-based economy like Canada's? Well, that, that document and, and the work that went into this over three decades, mm -hmm. it's so much thought, if you have a chance to read it, um, so much thought has been put into that, and most of it's just common sense. Yeah. Most of it is about recognizing that Indigenous people around the world have significant contributions. And it goes back to my earlier points around if we're going to build this country together, let's do it together with Indigenous communities. Otherwise, yes, there are going to be more court cases. We've won over 90% of the court yes. cases that we enter into. Now, if I was corporate Canada or the government, I wouldn't want to face those odds. So let's find other ways. So, you know, veto... <laughs> I'm not crazy about that term, quite frankly. No. I think it's about, you know, let's get to the table and figure this relationship out. And mm -hmm. sometimes no might mean no. With indigenous community, if there's just too much impact, some communities might just say, no, let's find alternatives. And, and the whole thing about a renewable energy uh, future for our communities and our country, I mean, we're going to progress there. But in the meantime, we still have a lot of work to do for our, for our communities. But we have to pay attention to it. And just because it's hard work, we shouldn't be shying away from it. Is this document actually, in, from your perspective, creating concern within the resource sector at all, like in terms of its application? I think it creates concern for Everybody. companies and the resource companies that have not put the time in, as Ron says, to sit down and have a coffee with our people. Yeah. Because ignorance, you just don't know. But once you start to sit down with our communities, you'll find out there's a lot of willingness to sit down and figure out a pathway forward. You know, I learned a lot of, if I can just add, I, I, I learned a long time ago that when you have two camps, be they indigenous or otherwise, and they're not talking to one another, then one of the camps starts saying, I wonder what these guys are doing. What's up? You know? And the other camp says, gee, I don't know. What are they doing? Mm -hmm. okay? So much could be solved by getting to the table and having a conversation about the wishes of both parties and finding the common ground and making it happen. As opposed to, and I, thankfully, I do see more and more companies that rather than go to court and rather than go to court and lose, which they're apt to do in these times, it's better to go out to the community, meet with the people and find out, simply say, how can we make this work for our mutual benefit? That's key. Mutual benefit is key. 
Yeah, and, and Jim Prentice's book, if you get a chance yeah. to re read Jim's book, I mean, it's, it's energy, it's indigenous relationships. It's, um, he does a brilliant job, in, and when it gets to the indigenous chapter, about three pages in, he says, their future is our future. And Jim was the only conservative MP who went and wanted to take on this role to work with Métis and Inuit and First Nations people because he understood that we are stronger together. And he, is such, he was such a passionate man about it. Give his book a read. You know, if I can use just a personal analogy, when I was a forester, um, we were looking at this tree and all the class was up here and, and the prof was there and he says, well, can you grade this tree? Is it a one, two, or three? One being incredible lumber, two being marginal, and three just being pulpwood. And uh, so we'd all start throwing out numbers and he said, you're all wrong. He said, not one of you got up to walk around that tree. And Jim was really great at getting up and walking around that tree when it came to the indigenous community. So we need to understand before we can make more effective decisions. <clears throat> so, Ron, the Development Corporation of your community at Six Nations uh, was recently recognized for its achievements. And I was there at the event. It was a wonderful event at, by the CCAB. What value do Indigenous Economic Development Corps, which have been highlighted as the economic engine for so many of our communities across the country, what do they bring to the table in business relationships other than access? What well, else do they bring well to the table? you know, you, that's a perfect example. <clears throat> I mean, that, that is my home community. And just for disclosure purposes, uh, you should all know that my son is the president of the Economic Development Corporation. Right. However, uh, having said that, they did bring access, Clint, but they also brought financing. Uh, I was part of a, of a group of people that raised capital for equity to participate with Samsung in that deal. And so uh, don't think that the only thing available uh, is access as a corporation. Um, they have skills. My people have skills. They have access to capital. They want to do it. They want to be successful. And they want to employ their own people. And they want to do it in a sustainable way. And I can tell you that the Samsung wind and solar project is mm -hmm. very, very sustainable. And it's, it's an ideal project for the community. Because they're, you're not going to have uh, any Aboriginal groups becoming involved in a coal-burning generation system, I can tell you. And uh, it's just passé. And I think most people recognize that. And, you know, it's noticeable up here you've got three men, and I want to recognize that because we did work with Clean Club, and we there's so many incredible Indigenous women out there mm. that actually couldn't make this. And one woman... Yeah, I, I'm uh, married to one of them, actually. You are, actually. There she is. <laughs> I see her. beautiful as ever. Um, I could tell when she cheered. When they yeah, she was the only <laughs> one who was allowed. It's great. I have my own cheering thing. Yeah. The... There's one Indigenous one that we tried to get, but it just didn't work out that I want to talk about. And it's sort of a, an addition to what Ron is saying. So her name is Nicole Boucher. Her and her husband, Dave and Nicole, started the Boucher Group. They started off with one vehicle. They got partnership with their community exec dev. They grew it into a hundred-plus million-dollar venture. And then they started um, competing because they, they wanted to take it to that next level against the tier ones of the world. And, and they couldn't compete successfully. They didn't have the balance sheet. They didn't have the global processes to, to make sure that they were competitive. So they shopped around for a partner. They found Carillion. Carillion is an international UK-based infrastructure organization. And they have a 51% partnership. Really incredible, though, is guess who owns that 51%? Dave and Nicole do. They manage and own and control an international company. Sure. And so let's just showcases, again, the innovation the business aptitude of indigenous people. I want to remind everybody in this room, Canada's first economic engine was powered by our ancestors, mm -hmm. the fur trade. 
We knew trade. We knew business. We knew the quality of product. We knew trade lines. We knew how to get it to a global environment. And so we've been on a hiatus for a very long time due to the colonialistic practices. Um, both of my grandmothers were taken away to residential school and this had impacts in, in my family and in my, in, in my community. But given the opportunity to shine, that is just one example, another example. There are dozens of examples of this indigenous innovation and this aptitude and this resilience. Quick question. Do we have enough time for two? We have five more minutes. Good. JP, I do want you to talk about this. Tell us how, uh, in your plug-in program, tell us how CCAB's Progressive Aboriginal oh, Relations Program, oh yeah. the PAR program, which I believe is absolutely fantastic, it's perfect, tell us how that can actually be a foundation for a plan of reconciliation for business in this country. I want to recognize Mr. Fay and, and MJ. Yeah. Uh, they're both PAR gold companies. Are there other PAR companies in the room? There, there, there are about... 50 uh, that will be approaching uh, the September. Progressive, progressive Aboriginal Relations. It is a certification program that is, admin we administer it, but it's, uh, we facilitate it, but it's Indigenous professionals and jury members that actually deliberate on, on um, companies' uh, success in Aboriginal relations. It's a framework, and Luann is here. Luann, can you please stand up? Because this is an amazing woman. It's been in my office. Luann White Crow runs our PAR program. She does an exceptional job because the companies are coming out of the woodworks. They want to understand how to do better business with our communities and our businesses. This framework that Luann knows inside and out is all about that. It puts a framework out there for companies to get better at indigenous relationships. So as an example, again, I mentioned Suncor. What they're doing in their supply chain, they're saying if you want to compete on Suncor projects, you better have all these things that PAR represents. We're also going to give Aboriginal businesses extra points in the scorecard. Bruce Power is doing this. Yes. Sin crew does so. Billions of dollars are being spent, which has incredible impacts in our economy. So Civio is another PAR silver company um, that also plugs into Suncor's projects. They're winning more contracts with Suncor because Suncor recognizes them as a progressive Aboriginal relations company. And 25% of their spend, over $100 million a year, is being spent in the Indigenous economy. So I want everybody to understand. We can address the education in this world, in, in Canada. We can, we can do it. We can address the infrastructure and the water issues and the school issues and the energy issues. But if we do not build an economy alongside all of this, we're going to fall back down. We have to build an economy, and that only gets done by changing our business practices when it comes to working with Indigenous businesses and understanding the importance that we have to play in this country. Ron, <clears throat> how many times have we said, you know, the best thing sometimes that government can do when it comes to business is get out of the way? Having said that, because of your experience with the Ontario Power Authority, I mean, you've seen firsthand government intervention and action and how um, it can help to create some viable economic opportunities for Indigenous communities in the private sector. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what you've witnessed as the evolution of a particular industry here in Ontario? Yeah, I, thanks, Clint. I, yes, I, I was fortunate to be a small portion of uh, designing a program that uh, uh, was, a, was a direct assist to Aboriginal communities because in my, I always felt that the government might push partnership to make these things happen and, and rather than do that, the Ontario Power Authority when I was on the board of directors devised a program where there was an economic adder. So if you were a mainstream corporation and you wanted to uh, take on an Aboriginal partner, you got extra dollars uh, per megawatt for doing that. And it was a scale. And the higher the participation rate by the Aboriginal communities, 
the greater the income to all. And it was a very, very important program, and it's been remarkably uh, successful. And uh, so uh, that's, that's about what example, Clint, but an important one, because it shows what incentive can do as opposed to trying to force partnerships going forward. It doesn't, the, I the forcing part doesn't work. That's great, that's a great comment. In this man here, our incredible moderator, I want to ask you a question. Oh. I mean, you had... Is he allowed to do that? No, he's Can not. Do that? This is, <laughs> do that? No, we're crazy so up here now. Clint's done incredible work, <laughs> incredible work with his community. And you know, just to tell you about the, the breadth of our business, we own airlines, we own helicopter companies. Can we you do? tell us about that? I mean, that's an exceptional story. Yeah, no, no, it's, um, so one of the things we wanted to do was quite funny because we were in a, so I'm from Nunatsubut, which is in Labrador. Uh, We had an opportunity uh, to partner in a variety of different uh, companies. We partnered with two companies, which were helicopter companies. And one thing that we noticed when we were looking at what our revenue was, uh, it was ourselves and the First Nations group that was there. It was a small sliver of revenue for us. And the contract was coming up for renewal. And we looked at it and said, like, we're a minority on the board. They don't hire any of our people. What the hell are we doing this for? Like, this makes no sense. We can go and invest our resources to try and generate revenue elsewhere. So <clears throat> when we sent that, our new CEO sent that message, when they went back to the two helicopter companies, they thought, oh, my God. Does that mean you're going to go up with one of our competitors? You're going to corner a major contract, and before you know it, we're going to be blown out of the water. So they started to scramble, and one of the companies came forward and said, okay, if you don't like that agreement, how about you buy us? And so we went, yes, that's what we're talking about. We actually have the capital to buy it. So we actually ended up buying the helicopter company, which were 19 helicopters, and the price tag was, was in excess of $45 million dollars. And frankly, it was one of the largest transactions that an Indigenous group did at that time. So it demonstrated that uh, we do have the, as Ron said, the capital, mm-hmm. the people, mm-hmm. the management skills in order to, to run companies like that. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was, a, it was a source of pride for the community. Yeah. yeah. So I, we're going to tie this up with one quick question. And then I'm going to tie it up at the end. JP, you have it. What, I mean, you talked extensively about economic reconciliation, what this country needs to do. What does Canada's economy look like when we've achieved that level of reconciliation? Mm. What does it look like? It means that our, again, I mentioned our unemployment rates are washed off the balance sheet of Canada. Mm-hmm. We have revenue sharing agreements for our Indigenous communities as well because we are also. Uh, treaty, we are all treaty people in this room, and so it's recognizing our treaties still have value and that there is revenue sharing with our First Nation and Inuit and Métis governments. And then there's also, as I mentioned a few, that these aren't just outliers where we have equity positions in, in many of Canada's projects going forward. We need to generate our own source revenue so that we can make our own decisions. And that means that our, uh, by the way, our Indigenous entrepreneurs outpace the non-Indigenous entrepreneur in, on, on, a, on a four to one ratio. Yep. And it means more of these Indigenous businesses are being successful and being part of every part of our economy. And that's what it looks like to me. Well, yeah. Nakamik for that. Listen, I hope this wasn't like Frost Nixon. You guys weren't really too much on that. Yeah, okay, this no, is a lot of pressure. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, thank you very much for this opportunity. I do want to say, in between when you're doing your binge walking with House of Cards or watching with House of Cards, I think which is being released today on Netflix, please, please, please take the time 
for it's just 20 pages, read the calls of action. Yes. Have yeah. a look at it and try to identify some of those calls of action that you can do personally. It's one of the greatest things that you can do as an individual, as a Canadian, and who's someone who's committed to improving this country. So with that, I want to say thank you very much with our esteemed panel and Nakumik for everybody. Thank you. Thanks. That's a great job. Good job. I really enjoyed that. Good job. Good job. Good job. Sweating like a farm animal up here. <laughs> Thank you so much to Clint, Ron, and uh, JP. Uh, we do have a special address now to complement the discussion we just heard. I'm going to read the biography for our next guests, Christopher C.J. and Jekineb. Chris is the president and CEO of Oris Gold. He's a member of the Laxul First Nation Band in northwestern Ontario. Chris possesses a strong understanding of the interrelated issues facing many First Nations of the requirements of many of the agencies involved with Aboriginal affairs, and of the practical implementation of the Crown's duty to consult and accommodate. Chris has served as a director to Oris Orcrest or since 2011 and was executive vice president from July 2015 to February 2017. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Chris. My English name is Christopher Anjikneb, and I'm a member of the Laxal First Nation in northwestern Ontario in the Treaty 3 area. I've been asked to speak to you today on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's 90-second call to action, carrying the heading Business and Reconciliation within the Commission's report. I'd first like to acknowledge and thank Chief LaForme, who's not present, and the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nation, whose traditional territory we're gathered. I'd also like to acknowledge my fellow members of today's head table and for the contributions of our previous speakers and their excellent discussion for today's Canada 150 celebration. I was born in Sault Ste. Marie in 1971, growing up as an urban Aboriginal in a time, for better or worse, when I was referred to as an Indian. My father was born on my grandfather's trapline, north of the Laxville Indian Reservation, Indian Reserve number 28, where he was raised until he was taken away to residential school. First to the Pelican Falls Residential School, and then after several successful attempts to run away back home, to the Shingwak Residential School, which is a on the site of what is now Algoma University. My mother's family had been in Canada for several generations when she was born, originally hailing from Germany and several places within the British Commonwealth, which makes me and my siblings fall into the taboo moniker of half-breeds. This also meant that we were subject to racism from both sides. Storms make oaks take deeper root, as they say. The single greatest piece of advice my father gave me before he passed away suddenly when I was 18, in response to a young me questioning how to fit into a world that didn't seem to want me, was, maybe you need to find a different way. Simple and analogous to the self-searching of almost any adolescent, but applicable to everything I've ever had to do. My traditional name is Jinlin. 
is an interpretation of a dream that an elder I highly respect had in my regard, uh, meaning roughly runner of the message. He saw me running between the communities, carrying the messages from one place to the next, never changing the wording of the original message. As I'm told, it was a highly respected occupation within the traditional indigenous societies. I am from the Caribou Clan. The 92nd call to action calls upon the corporate sector of Canada to embrace and apply the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples when Indigenous peoples and their lands and resources are involved with any activities of any corporations. It fits wonderfully within a holistic approach typical to the indigenous cultural worldview, not to be taken in isolation from the other 93 calls to action, and establishes some lofty but eminently achievable goals. It's been my observation through the many and varied jobs that I've had working for Aboriginal organizations and First Nations over the past 30 years, uh, my first summer job was for the Indian Friendship Center in Sault Ste. Marie when I was 15, is that the application of the Indian Act, itself 140 years old, is one of legislated poverty for First Nations and isolation of their members from the lands, such as my grandfather's trapline, where the traditional lifestyles and the old religion flourished. I don't believe that the many sharing treaties and the Indian Act itself originally intended such, but in the interpretation and application of both, it became the reality. Other travesties that arose from the Act have been well documented, and it will take generations to reconcile. Oddly enough, the Indian Act recognizes me as a full-status Indian, regardless of my mixed heritage. My mother is also a status Indian because that's the way it worked in those days. My experiences with my own band, the Laxal First Nation, can illustrate this. I started employment with them as the flood claim coordinator, as a liaison between our lawyers and the, the flood claim committee with respect to the specific claims process and negotiations. In 1928, construction began on the Ear Falls Dam and hydroelectric generating station which ultimately led to the illegal flooding of the Laxal Reserve and the loss of most of the resources that the elders, <clears throat> oh, sorry, that contributed to the elders' choice of the reserve location in the first place, as well as a significant portion of the reserve land base itself. Obijikokan, our traditional name, has been fighting for restitution through a variety of formal processes since 1985 beginning with the federal specific claims process and the provincial historic grievances processes, but ultimately winding up in courts. The Earfalls Dam provided power to a growing resource extraction industry, both for mining and forestry, whereas the Laxal Reserve did not become electrified until the mid-1980s. Timber extraction from the reserve lands and a number of failures of fiduciary obligation was a separate grievance from the same time period. Settlements of aspects of the flooding claim and of the timber trespass court victory provided Laxal with something that it had never had before, money of its own, without the springs of what is now Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada. My next job title 
was Lands and Resources Coordinator, wherein I became the point of contact for consultation and accommodation. I think of my responsibility to my band through that job as being the thorn in the Crown's side. And while I was quite good at it, relationship building with the Crown and industry became the real focus. It was during this period that Laxul invested some of its settlement funds into a little junior exploration company that was renamed Orcrest Gold Incorporated, trading as AGO on the TSXB. <laughs> and I was selected by my council to become a director of the company. And right about that time, the precious, markets, precious metals market tanked, making for a large number of interesting lessons. The final role I performed for Laxul was general manager, comma, economic development. It was my job to create an economy for the band, including free cash profit and employment and training opportunities, both on and off reserve, with band-owned corporations and individual entrepreneurs. Also during this time, I was one of the principal negotiators for the various business partnerships and industry exploration and collaboration agreements and again, my father's advice echoed loudly to me, especially as an off-reserve band member working on reserve. I'm quite proud of my accomplishments from that period, from being part of the team that negotiated the Laxville Generation Station Partnership Agreement with OPG, to finally seeing the Gold Core Red Lake Gold Mines Collaboration Agreement to fruition, to see to several exploration agreements with junior exploration companies, to bringing Tim Horton's franchise to Sioux Lookout and giving the local youth their first real service industry jobs, to securing the Giant Tiger franchise in Sioux Lookout as part of a very long-term lease in a commercial building owned by the band. In that same period, I sat on many boards for organizations striving to make changes on the landscape. Most significantly, was the Watena Kaniap power line project. I'm even proud, although <laughs> saddened by the necessity of it, in that I followed through on validly terminating the employment of a cousin, given the reputation that many First Nations have with respect to nepotism. In my current role as President and CEO of Orcrest Gold Incorporated, I'm again reminded that maybe I need to find another way. There remains a general and depressing and unhealthy lack of infrastructure in First Nation communities in Ontario. The treaties that were signed over a century ago were intended to share the wealth of this country, regardless of how the subsequent years have panned out. To impact the Northern First Nation communities in a very positive way, our current standard of consultation with Indigenous groups needs to turn into participation of Indigenous groups. Orcrest Gold embodies this notion as we are a First Nations-led resource company with First Nations equity ownership by the Laxo First Nation, who, as I stated earlier, actually invested their own money. As a gold exploration company, it's my intent to have Orcrest work in regions where the local communities welcome me as a mining and renewable resource partner and not as a thief. There are opportunities for me to provide assistance to the local communities that go well beyond paying a portion of my exploration expenditures into a community sustainability fund. There are avenues to reduce diesel dependence in remote communities by developing alternative energy sources in partnership with my neighbours, 
so that I can purchase power from them later on in the mining cycle. Orcrest has created the subsidiary company, Wigwasatic Energy Incorporated, to develop renewable and sustainable energy infrastructure in partnership with the, co the company's neighboring Aboriginal communities. Wigwasatic has already signed its first letter of intent with Catalake First Nation for a 40 megawatt renewable energy project. There are willing employees to be had, specialized training to be developed, senses of self-worth to be grown, roads and other vital infrastructure to be built, and for my own sense of self-worth, cross-cultural relationships to be built and nurtured. The next steps for Orcrest include the exploration and development of the company's northwestern Ontario gold properties, the staking of new gold, platinum, and copper mineral resources, with the guidance of the local indigenous communities, and through our subsidiary Wigwaxing, assist with the development of the electrical infrastructure and renewable energy for future use at Orcrest properties. The corporate culture in Canada is uniquely positioned to make good on the 90-second call to action, provided that the der derivation of economic benefits and all of the positive impacts it can have in a holistic sense of health is truly felt by all. I believe the business model of Orcrest can accomplish this as it serves as a vehicle to grow the shareholder value and meaningfully contribute to the socioeconomic development of my neighboring Aboriginal communities. Now, in closing, I'd like to leave you with the words of another gentleman who's an, <laughs> it's always struck me. These words have always struck me with their brilliance, plain and simple. And the men who hold high places must be the ones to start, to mold a new reality closer to the heart. Neil Pert. Thank you for your attention. I was just saying to Chris, I'm a Rush fan, so I really enjoyed that quote. Okay, so we have, uh, we're, we're almost at the finish line. We have one special uh, ceremonial activity to take place. Uh, so if I could ask uh, Clint, JP, Chris, and Ron to join me and Mike from IBK Capital and blowing out the candles. Uh, and I'm calling it today, it's Canada's 150 plus in respect of our guests and those who are here before us. So please join me. my pleasure at this time to invite Mike White up to uh, give the official uh, thank you. Thank you, Paul. Mr. President, distinguished head table guests, fellow members and guests of the Empire Club of Canada, I have the pleasure to express our formal thanks to the three key speakers and their firms 
and also the moderator today. Uh, Ron Jamison, thank you. JP Gladeau, thank you. Chris Angiconome, thank you. And Clint Davis, thank you very much. Gentlemen, what you did today, why you did it, and how you did it helps each of us to better understand and embrace the capital markets and Aboriginal business. Each of your presentations pointed out to how attractive Aboriginal business has been, as well as the challenges of the opportunities available in 2017 to all of us potential investors. Over the last few weeks, Premier Kathleen Wynne has visited with the Matawa First Nations, uh, the Cree and Ojibwe leadership, and highlighted that the billion dollars that the Ontario government has committed to build the road to the Ring of Fire is on the table. The Ontario government wants to get the infrastructure started prior to the 2018 election and is working to get consensus uh, about the corridor and route of that road. What a great way to welcome the next several years in Ontario. But this cannot be done without the First Nations communities. I'm glad that she has decided to engage the communities, whether it be as a collective group or as individual communities. And I just want to say to our speakers today that if not for all of your effort through the years and continued effort for many years to come, uh, none, of, none of this would be possible. Uh, the, the Canada is, is well blessed with natural resources and energy and, and uh, all the businesses that, that spring from that. And it has been too long uh, since, too long since we've been, uh, I guess, respectful and mindful of uh, how those resources, how the energy of our country and how the communities that all live in this country together uh, should approach uh, the extraction and uh, the, the businesses that spring from those natural resources. So you all today are builders of the economy. Your leadership and entrepreneurship is infectious and will continue to fee feed real growth with First Nations and the economy of Canada. Thank you all very much for being here today. I will keep my closing uh, remarks brief. I do want to thank our two sponsors today, our lead sponsor, IBK Capital, and our VIP sponsor, BMO. Without sponsors, we couldn't have events like this. We are a not-for-profit club, so please join me in giving them a hand. And although our club has been around since 1903, we are on social media. Please follow us at Empire underscore club on Twitter. I'm also told we have a Snapchat account. I don't even use Snapchat, but we're there, which speaks volumes to the staff and to the club. Uh, our next lunch is here. It's here at One King West. I'm looking at my staff. On June the 5th, we have the Honorable Dominique Anglade, Quebec's Minister of Economy, Science, and Innovation, which should be a very exciting discussion. Thank you so much for coming today. That was a fantastic discussion, and our goal actually is to have this as an annual event and keep the conversation going. So keep, uh, keep on the lookout for this next year. Thank you so much. Thank you.